Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last week, we covered all three days of the Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber conference and trade show, live and in person outside Washington, D.C., where we met with General Cobra Harigian, the commander of U.S. Air Forces in Europe and U.S. Air Forces Africa, as well as NATO's Allied Air Command and the Joint Air Power Competence Center. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Here's our conversation with General Cobra Harigian. And it is my honor to be talking to United States Air Force General Cobra Harigian, uh, who is the commander of U.S. Air Forces Europe, as well as NATO's Allied Air Command, uh, as well as U.S. Air Forces Africa, sir. Uh, thanks so very much for making time for us. It's great to be here. Always good to be back in D.C. and spend a little time with you, Vago. Uh, absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm looking forward now that COVID is over to come over uh, forward and see uh, the operation there firsthand. It's been a while since uh, I've uh, been able to bask in the USAFE glow. Uh, but, you know, this this conference has really all been about China, China, China. Um, you know, as we heard from uh, Secretary Kendall and the chief, obviously that's the biggest uh, pacing threat. Uh, at the same time, you're dealing with Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, you know, on a daily uh, basis, when you you don't have your ears and hands full of Afghanistan or anyone in the a number of other crises around the world, obviously, that USAFE is supporting. Talk to us a little bit about how we need to think about Russia uh, at this time. It is a very, very important great power, very disruptive, not just in Europe, but also in the Pacific. Uh, and we've just seen Army 21, a uh, tremendous show where a lot of new capability was was uh, showcased. And then we had the Zapad exercise mm -hmm. that's ongoing right now, uh, where the Russians always like to give us a little bit of something to think about. How should we be thinking about Russia and what their capabilities are like and how it's improving? Yeah, first off, I think it's important to, to recognize uh, their activities, whether it be um, developing capabilities or trying to, I'll, I'll call it refining their hybrid way of operating, continues to be a ser serious issue that uh, really it's not, and it's not just for the U.S., it's a global issue when you look at all the places that they're operating. And then you look at the development of what they've done with uh, some of their hypersonic testing, uh, moving from SA-21 alphas to bravos. That's all ongoing. None of that has stopped. Uh, and then even more broadly, if you look at what they've done with some of the private military contractors down in Africa, uh, who they're engaging to try to broaden their influence, uh, th this is uh, a nation that will continue to be a challenge globally that we got to keep our eye on. And what are some of the specific capabilities? You mentioned uh, hypersonics. There's a lot of stuff they're doing on undersea. Uh, you're also one of the senior most leaders uh, in, in the joint and coalition environment in Europe. What are some of the specific things that they've been doing recently that you find most worrying and that we need to be paying more attention to? Well, I think first you've got to remember just a couple months ago they had the buildup in Crimea um, as activities were ongoing down there. And, uh, you know, fundamentally, as uh, we, we look at our posture, look at our indications and warning, we're always looking for those avenues they would be using to work their influence activities, uh, to gain a foothold, whether that be politically or to, frankly, shape what's happening in those nations. And they do that then in combination with, as you said, uh, take some of these uh, hypersonic shots, which fortunately, with our great partners that we work with across Europe, 
We get really good intel exactly what's happening, and we're able to monitor that. The other part that I just brought up, though, is if you look at where they've moved around some of their advanced weapons, they continue to improve uh, their uh, A2AD capabilities that, uh, again, for us, drives us to make sure not, not only do we know what's happening, but how are we going to handle that uh, when it looks to competing across Europe? Uh, and do, are you satisfied with where you are to be able to defend against this new generation of capability? We don't yet have a hydrosonic capability. Uh, their electromagnetic capabilities are, mm -hmm. to say the least, formidable uh, that they've occasionally used to zonk or disrupt uh, you know, air traffic in the Baltic and elsewhere. Are you comfortable that we are where, where we need to be? And if not, what are the things that we, where do we need to be investing in order to improve capability? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as we've talked about over the course of this week, I think as a, an Air Force, we've got work to do. And uh, as Secretary Kendall has highlighted, uh, we got to get after modernizing. Now, having said all that, I'm here to tell you if something happened, we'll be ready. We got partners that are invested with us, um, and we've got the greatest airmen in the world, and we'll figure out how to get it done. And it won't just be an air thing. I will tell you the work we're doing with both our Army partners. Uh, with the, the naval capability, it will be a joint and coalition effort uh, that will ensure that we can throw a punch that'll hurt. Are you satisfied with, you know, the, obviously a big discussion uh, is the kind of air and missile defenses that the Air Force can get. I mean, I mean the Army now is finding that the air and missile defense capabilities it has are, are going to be taxed, I think, uh, to put it mildly. Navy is in the same sort of uh, position. Are you comfortable that there is sufficient air and missile defense capability when you need it? Yeah, so as you know, uh, it's been one of the key areas that I've been promoting innovation and, hey, we got to find ways to be more agile in the way we provide that capability. Thinking about, you know, Patriots and THAAD, Great capabilities, but can't move sometimes at the speed we'd like them to. And so then as you look at what would be all the things we have to protect, do we have enough of that? Well, over time, maybe we get there, but to do it at the speed that I believe is required is something we got to keep working on. And I think, again, leveraging the capabilities that our allies and partners have and build out that infrastructure that allows us to connect and share the information, that's where we got to go because that's the only way we're going to be able to respond at speed. Um, uh, speaking of speed, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal operation, Yusefi was obviously a critical player in that you still have 9,000 refugees at Ramstein uh, in order to deal with. Um, from your standpoint as a, a warfighting airman, um, what are some of the lessons from that extraction that you think go beyond merely a non-combatant evacuation. Obviously, the biggest non-combatant evacuation uh, executed as quickly uh, his with historic speed. On the other hand, you know, folks look at it and they say, "Well, that's not, that's not you know that was a that was a neo extraction." How? What are the lessons to be drawn from that that you think are applicable to any future operation? So it again reiterated to me the challenges with global integration. You know, because you're going from Kabul down to LUD to Ramstein back to the States. So between CENTCOM, UCOM, NORTHCOM, and then, you know, kind of command and controlling that, there's challenges. And when you talk about how we have a shared understanding of what's going on, there's work to be done there. And that's, you know, when we talk about 
um, you know, sensor shooter, the sensing grid and all that. Ultimately, it comes back to how do we make sure we have a, an understanding across each of these combatant commands of what's going on so you can make timely decisions. That, that, that was one. The second one that was apparent to me, and um, this is probably because of uh, the processing we had to do to screen and vet and then ensure the, the travelers, the Afghans, were ready to go back to the States, is the interagency coordination. You know, we had TSA, we had Customs Border Patrol, we had FBI. Um, we, we, they were all there. Great support from the State Department. But when you talk about systems that need to talk to each other seamlessly, we got to get ahead of that. And, uh, it, and that may be particular to this type of operation, but arguably there's other areas that it's, it's really applicable. So, you know, those are the two big ones that we've got work to do. I will tell you we figured it out because that's we're America. We do it. <laughs> we know how to do it. Uh, we just need to use this as a good exemplar of areas we need to get after in the future. It's astonishing that 20 years into the global war on terror and we've been talking about whole-of-government responses, that we're still surprised by this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, the reality is it's hard. It's complex, and um, sometimes the, there's, there's got to be a forcing function that drives you to go sort some of this out. And um, that's why I think we shouldn't miss the opportunity to go back, do a good you know, operational kind of tactical level debrief of what are the things going forward that we should continue to, to train together and I would argue that even as we talk about, you know, the infamous data moving around, it's the same thing. And so there's some really good lessons there that I think um, we need to capture and, and move forward on as, as we go, you know, from here. How much of it is what to do, right? I mean, the chief uh, and the secretary both are talking about speed. Uh, that's, a big, that's a challenging thing, right? I mean, his mantra to all co uh, combatant commanders and everybody in the Air Force was, hey, if, if your bosses aren't moving fast enough, go ahead and do it. You know, going to a Navy model of beg forgiveness, you know, it's always better to beg forgiveness than ask for permission. Uh, on the other hand, that can also be very problematic in a military organization, right? How much of this if, if you're trying to move everybody intellectually, organizationally, bureaucratically, how much is it about what you're doing and how much of it is what you stop doing, right? Especially even in a crisis situation like that. Yeah, so um, I, I think uh, General Brown hit on a little bit. You know, it starts with the culture and it's gotta be uh, leaders willing to accept some risks that things aren't gonna go exactly right. And, you know, I came from, you know, 26 months in the, the Middle East where we had to empower people. And um, you can talk about it, but you got to do it. And so this is, you know, I talked a little bit yesterday about, hey, you can have a lot of concepts and papers out there and say we're going to empower, but at the end of the day, you got to go find ways where you actually do that and recognize that, to your point, things could go bad. I gave you a great example. So, you know, I was telling, telling you about we sent um, a captain in charge of about 85 people up to Estonia, and I went, Hey, how'd it go? Ah, sir, it was awesome. I'm like, nobody's thrown in jail? Nobody got hurt? No, sir. Score. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there were other things that weren't perfect, but that's okay because when you look them in the eye and they know that you are trusting them to go deliver, that is worth its weight in gold. And, and that's the, the human piece of this whole discussion that I think it's important that we, you know, my level, and really all the way down to colonels and lieutenant colonels believe, hey, move out. We, we got top cover for you. Not everything requires a general involved. No. 
you know that better than anybody. I, you know, I don't want to get involved in all that, but I do believe, and this is, you know, kind of another assumption we make is that we know how to, you know, we talk about guidance and intent. Hey, just give your guidance and intent. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good, but you got to practice doing that and you got to make sure that they understand what you mean. And, you know, you, you can go uh, very specific, we, but that's not the place to go. You got to give them, you got to give them rope. You got to give them maneuver space and then describe it in a way that they understand it and it, you know, they're in your head. Um, there are so many other questions I want to ask you, but this begs um, agile combat employment question. Mm -hmm. Too often in these exercises, we don't really do them right. It doesn't tax the force as much, and it doesn't put the kind of pressure they're going to be under. Yeah. Any adversary is not only going to have you under fire in six minutes as you're trying to move, and we will have advance warning and everything, right? But when the game starts, it's six minutes and you've got to move a lot of assets very quickly, potentially in a hypersonic era. Then there's going to be emission denied. There's mm -hmm. going to be a heavy electromagnetic and folks are not going to be able to communicate, which then boils down to mission command and, and mm -hmm. initiative. How much farther do we have to go to get to where the vision is? What are you learning in these agile combat employment exercises? Because the right way for this to happen is actually a lot of failure and very little patting ourselves on the back. Hey, we really nailed this. Yeah, um, you're exactly right. So fundamentally, we had to just, had to start out with let's let's underpin it with the the right infrastructure of things for these folks to take a six ship to pick a country. Um, and I would tell you, over the last 18 months, we made some pretty good progress there. But the next step is exactly what you're talking about, which is Odo, how do we build an exercise that allows that mindset to infiltrate the leadership such that if they they can sense that pressure of hey you got to move um, in a timely manner and you're gonna have to make decisions and um, we have I, you know because I, I was thinking about that the other day I go like oh, okay so how do we put them in a position where this major has to make a decision if he flushes his airplanes or you know sends people to go protect the perimeter those kind of things um, and so we've got now the we know what it looks like to go and move them. Now we got to go figure that out. And uh, this is a little bit uh, my point that I was raising that, you know, there's an Air Force Enterprise piece of this that has to help us think through this. You know, we've leaned into it at the, the squadron wing level. Um, we got to raise our game now as we really get serious about how we put them in that, you know, pressure cooker of a situation where they got to make a decision because that's really where we'll start to uncover some of the other challenges with this CONOP. How long will those cultural and intellect, is this a five-year thing, a two-year thing? How, how quick is a reasonable speed to move on yeah, this? Yeah, you know, um, like I said, in the last 18 months, we, we've made more progress than frankly I thought we were gonna be able to make because uh, you know you got, got to work with not only internal to us, but also with the partners where we're going. Um, I would guess in the next three to five years, we should have in place the, you know, not only what and how we're going to do it, but then grow it into a capability that um, understands logistically how you support it and then how you train to it. And that's, um, and when I say train, kind of from almost basic military training all the way into the, when they get into the squadron where they're like, okay, I know what a multi-capable environment is. I'm cool with that. I'll have my little area of expertise. But I also want to do all these other cool things that contribute to us, you know, generating combat power. 
And a brief word from our sponsors, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Um, I, I remember uh, uh, Army Major General Shapiro, who was the theater sustainment uh, guy in Europe, talking about, hey, look, this, this is Cold War logistics movement. Anything fixed is going to get hit. I mean, and that's how we've got to think about it. Are we thinking enough about the, the notion that everything will have to be moving all the time? God forbid if something happens, as it did in the Cold War. Yeah, so I think there's, there's couple pieces of this. One is, you know, what do we, what and where do we pre-position assets? Um, you know, we have over time kind of built these big, huge warehouses and they got a lot of stuff in them. And the idea being when things start to flow, you pull it out and, and we are, we're already digging into that and we're starting to parse it out and go, okay, now we got to figure out how we do the agreements to put them in the right locations. And so that's when I'm saying three to five years to work the agreements, what are the specific capabilities, and then um, arguably working, you know, with the 21st for us on how do we uh, find the right capabilities that we can provide together because the idea would be somebody's going to be the supported commander. You know, if UCOM says, hey, we're in this particular, we got a response option or something. Somebody's to be like, hey, this component's got it, of which now we're working a supporting effort to do exactly what you're talking about. And I would actually tell you that um, the, the work we've been doing with the Afghans, the, the 21st has been a phenomenal partner for us. And has, you know, we've worked through this and not only from a data perspective, but them rolling in to provide us uh, SEC4 and those kind of things. These are the kind of things that we got to go practice in agile combat employment. Um, let me uh, ask you a broader European air uh, integration and training question. Um, I, and I should give a shout out to the uh, Spangdalem airmen who figured out the refueling situation without like 14 days of approval and paperwork and people, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, good on them for trying to figure out, you know, a novel way of being able to do the mission uh, without, um, uh, with, with a little bit less bureaucracy because mm -hmm. it's astonishing even within an alliance that, that this, this kind of stress level. Anyway, that's a different conversation. Ben, ben Hodges is about three inches shorter now because he had to deal with that kind of crap. Um, let me ask you about uh, European air power integration. Obviously, we have fifth generation assets going on there. I think a lot of people forget that it's actually uh, Anglo-American, European-American air power that's aboard Queen Elizabeth and the largest ever mm -hmm. stealth deployment at sea uh, that's projecting power uh, and presence over in the Pacific. Um, and, and obviously, you're going to get your Lake and Heath jets uh, soon. Uh, Italy has jets, the Dutch have jets, right? I mean, there's, there, there, oh, yeah. well, there's quite Numbers a big cadre. Um, so you need to now start to address that fifth, fourth generation air integration. Uh, obviously, France and its partners and Britain and its partners are working on a sixth generation aircraft mm -hmm. as we're working in yeah. GAD um, as, as well. Talk to us about how you guys are thinking and working together to integrate this air power. Um, obviously, it, it, it worries uh, the Russians, uh, which, yeah. which kind of is a good thing. Uh, how, how do we need to think about it, and what's the kind of synthetic training environments we need? Training space is very, very tight. You have an innovative approach to training in Aviano that you hope to replicate elsewhere. But in the end, some of the complicated missions we'll be doing will have to be in virtual synthetic environments that you can't do on the jets or, organically. How, how are you thinking about this entire picture? Yeah, so um, we just had the, uh, the NATO Air Chiefs come together last week, and this was a, a specific topic we talked about. You know, from the uh, live range perspective, 
Um, we're working closely, of course, with the UK on how we bring in some emitters and the idea being, hey, let's not duplicate effort. And if, if they're pursuing things, same thing with uh, the Dutch and the, I mean, I can go through the list. And the idea is to- Great capability at Marum, for example, where the yeah. Brits are, have got their jets. Exactly. And the idea would be, okay, let's, let's get a lay down of who's doing what, and then how do we best, uh, as the U.S., kind of play the role as the integrator to say, okay, this is where you guys are going, and you can visualize, hey, we, we would like to have something in the high north to train up there, something in Central Europe, and then down in the south, broadly. I mean, you can visualize that. And then each one of those nations is going to bring capabilities that, from a, a live-range perspective, will help to, because you got to go fly, and you got to work through Link 16 connectivity, crypto, all those kind of things. But then, to your point, particularly with uh, fifth and fourth um, and this has been a, a, a bit of a topic for me because uh, largely, you know, they're buying these airplanes because we want to be interoperable. And we got to get in the synthetic environment to really do the types of training required for these A2, AD takedowns and the high end where you can, you know, do the jamming against the airplanes, uh, make the problem really difficult. I will you know tell you straight up one of the big issues is just uh we got policy barriers that we got to break through and this is a little bit general brown and i i'm like hey i'm just going to do this because we, we got to figure out how we what's the policy barrier well it, it's uh there's classification issues you know we we can't go over there and just operate secret us only not going to work we'll never fight that way uh, but there are things that drive us to have to say hey can i go do this and so as we get the policy squared away, I think the technical solutions, they're there. But I got to break through on a couple of these specific issues that um, make it more challenging to do exactly what you're talking about. Uh, two more questions. Uh, one is, um, even though we are out of Afghanistan, um, you know, your career is intersected with Afghanistan, Iraq, Gulf War was your was the first Gulf War, was your first uh, air, air operation as an F-15 pilot. Um, how do we need to think about doing the counterterror mission? Um, it is difficult. Um, I, I, I think, you know, when people talk about over the horizon, uh, people don't recognize that USAFI assets have been supporting our French allies in, in Mali uh, and elsewhere across Africa, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Niger being one of those, one of those places, uh, and obviously a lot of other places that you're not going to talk to me about. So how do we need to think about this? Because there's this tendency people have that it's like, oh, this is going to free all of Cobra and, and cruisers bandwidth for China and Russia and you guys are still gonna to have to be engaged in this. And how do we step up our game? Obviously, there was the unfortunate incident that happened. One of the challenges is they don't have to be American boots on the ground. Any boots on the ground will do. But how do we need to think about this long range sustained? Because it's not over the horizon, it's called air power. And, and how we're gonna employ and use it and, and be more thoughtful as we go about doing this to make sure that we don't cause more problems potentially than we solve. Yeah, you know, so, I from an operational perspective, um, we first got to acknowledge, you know, that some of the locations that we go to, to your point, vast distances, and um, having the infrastructure to be able to go there and then persist and look at it from an airborne perspective, you know, we know how to do that. There's a bill associated with that, and we need to acknowledge that, you know, it's going to cost people and it's going to cost dollars. I would tell you, though, the other, and this is my opinion on this, um, 
key to any of these things is how we make sure um, we have the network still alive to have an understanding of what's going on. And, you know, you, if you go back and look at what happened with ISIS and all that, I mean, there's a pretty good understanding. You were the one of the architects of that well, campaign. Yeah, so, so, you know, yeah, I was, I was in the five at the time that we built the plan to come out of there. Um, but it, you step back and you go, hey, we got to make sure that from the U.S. strategic perspective, you don't just go, hey, um, as, we, as we depart this, we're going to um, – not have the ability to understand what's going on. And, and it, I would offer, it can't just be air. You gotta have other ways, and you can imagine what some other ways might be to have an understanding of what's going on so we're not surprised. We cannot be strategically surprised again. And so that, that's my take on it. And um, you know, this is one of those that we gotta think, again, I'll kinda come back, it's a whole of government problem. And it's, it's doable, but we gotta be thoughtful about it and strategically pick the right capabilities to make sure we have that insight. Um, I, I, I have one more question, but I have to have a follow-up on that. Are we, you know, you and I have talked about the nature of surprise and that you're going to be surprised. The whole question is whether you can uh, respond to it, right? Afghanistan shows that you can actually move mm -hmm. quickly uh, in the wake of, of something that was a surprise for whatever reasons. Um, do you think that we're thinking as creatively about the threat and what the adversary adversaries can do so we're less surprised, right? Are, are we thinking as far out of the box on some of these things as we need to and asking ourselves those kind of hard, unvarnished questions? Um, I would say that um, in some circles, yes. You know, I, you know, got to acknowledge that it's never going to be perfect intel. Um, I would offer that particularly at uh, my level, the key is to ask the right questions of our Intel folks and, you know, in my words, be a demanding customer because, to your point, um, you're never going to have perfect situational awareness. Um, and and we got to acknowledge that sometimes the way we've approached it, I'll say traditionally, is not going to work in the future. And so coming up with uh, other ways to allow you to kind of focus on an area where you think something could happen and you use... I'll call them all techniques available to you, uh, and this is again from a Department of Defense perspective. That that to me will be the key because if we can scale that and have a good idea where we need to, you know, you can't look every place all the time. That to me is how we minimize the potential for being strategically surprised. Um, last question: um, EU is uh, looking to obviously build their own capability. For some, this is an anti-NATO thing. Although NATO's, uh, you know, EU makes clear, "Hey, look, we're trying to improve capabilities. We're all great NATO partners. We, we just want to provide greater capability, but also have a capability to do things on our own and not necessarily always ask the United States whether it's mm -hmm. in Mali or, or or anywhere else." What are some of the measures? Uh, you know, it's funny, you came up in a conversation with the old EU military committee chief who said, you know, oh, you know, Cobra and I had a conversation about, about that. What are some of the things that we can be doing between the United States and the EU and, and you know, and more broadly that are confidence-building measures and, and gets that muscle memory going beyond sort of building duplicative yeah. headquarters, right? But in terms of being able to deliver real capability, whether it's in you know, arms transfer agreements or operational things, what, what are some of the things that we need to think about this, given that that capability, it's important for them to be as strong as possible to be the best allies they can be? Right. Well, to your point, first off, we, we got to keep this conversation going. 
you know, and it shouldn't be digital. That there's there's area to maneuver here. And as you and I were talking earlier, I think in space there's a great opportunity for the EU to invest in that, and then from the the broader EU security perspective, provide that information and be a key partner with NATO as we talk about security and stability across. It's, it's a global issue there. I think also in the the air domain, uh, there's potential for them and I'll use that term broadly, to develop capabilities that, uh, frankly, again, as you talk about competing and indications and warning, can be huge value to NATO. And the assessment or analysis required to go figure out what those capabilities are, I believe, is where we need to have that conversation, because then we can really leverage the power of the EU. Would you put air and missile defense on that, too? Oh, yeah. Certainly. You know, there are things, particularly, and it goes back to space and um, in the air domain that they could provide those capabilities. So it's always an honor and pleasure and can't wait to see you over in uh, Ramstein. Thanks very much again, sir. All right. Uh, always great to talk to you and we look forward to seeing you over there.